my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Lindsay Pollack. She is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the world's leading career and workplace experts. She is passionate about helping individuals and organizations navigate and thrive in the ever-changing world of work. Lindsay was named to the 2020 Thinkers 50 radar list, which honors the top global management thinkers whose work is shaping the future of how organizations are managed and led. Her latest book is a response to the COVID crisis titled Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. It was published by HarperCollins on March 23rd, 2021. She's written several other books. Lindsay's speaking audiences and consulting clients have included more than 250 corporations, law firms, conferences, and universities, including Aetna, Citi, Estee Lauder Companies, GE, Goldman Sachs, Google, Pfizer, Verizon, Yale, Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. Like just this incredible resume and I am honored to have her on my show today to talk about the things that she's most passionate about. Um, we're going to talk about a nonprofit that she sits on the board for and just areas that if you are developing as a leader, if you're making transitions in your career, even within your organization, this is the person that people go to and pay to help them achieve more. So thank you so much, Lindsay. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me today and to share your story with, with the audience. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I'm really honored and look forward to our conversation. All right, well, let's, uh, let's start off with you know, your roots. Where were you born and raised? And you know, what did your parents do? And, and what were some of those early influences that led you on this trajectory? I love this question because I think sometimes the seeds of people's careers are really obvious when you look back at the beginning. Um, so I was born and raised in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is about 80 miles from New York City. My dad for my whole life was a public school, high school English teacher. So reading and books were always really big in our family. My mom was an art teacher, and then she left to raise our family. I'm the oldest of three kids and spent my whole childhood in Norwalk, went to public schools, and I graduated and was fortunate to go to Yale University. And when I got there, um, I kind of struggled with figuring out what I wanted to do. I'd always been, you know, kind of an English student. I liked writing a lot. I remember writing an essay in third grade saying that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. But I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I started looking at scholarship programs for graduate school. And if you know, like local rotary clubs that they have all around the world, uh, rotary clubs offer really generous international scholarships. 
And so kind of on a whim for fun, I applied to go to Australia because I had always wanted to go to Australia and I ended up winning a scholarship to go to Melbourne, Australia. And just to wrap up how the, the speaking part of my business came in, I didn't really know what I wanted to study, um, but I was really interested in women starting businesses. Uh, my mom had ended up starting a small business um, as the kids were growing up. And so I pitched the idea of writing a project on Australian women business owners. And I went and I did that research and I visited Rotary Clubs and I came back and, you know, they said, what did you learn on your research and so on? And then they said, um, did you do your required number of speeches at Rotary Clubs? And I said, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there was a required number. How many? And they said, you were supposed to do four. And I said, oh, I did 39. <laughs> so I thought, wait, there's something in this I really like. My first job after that was in New York City in a magazine called Working Woman. But on the side, I was always speaking at Rotary Clubs about my research, about what I was learning. And when Working Woman, unfortunately, went bankrupt with the dot-com bust around 2000, 2001, I accidentally started my own business, giving little workshops on how to get a job. I started a blog on how I had found my first job. And that ultimately became my first book, Getting from College to Career. And the rest has grown from there. So I think the seeds were there really early on. And I was really fortunate to have some opportunities. Um, but I always wonder if working women hadn't got out of business, would I still be there? You know, sometimes fate intervenes and, and ends up taking you in unexpected directions. So now you're you're in New York City and your your major course of work, the the influence that you have on major corporations, how did that develop and and lead to what you're doing right now? So that's an interesting uh, tra transition. I had started giving workshops on college campuses. And um, because I was recently out of school, I would give workshops through career services offices and student affairs. And I talked about getting your first job and everything was about getting your first job. And, and particularly, I was really into using sites like LinkedIn and social media and kind of what at the time was the new digital economy. Um, and LinkedIn heard about my work at one point and hired me as a consultant to teach LinkedIn on college campuses. So they, they called me a campus ambassador and I got really interested in that. And then what kind of happened was a little bit of luck, which is around 2008, 2009, the word millennial started to kind of explode on the scene. And I did have one kind of smart marketing moment where on my website, I always describe myself as an early career expert, an early career author, an early career speaker. And one day I said, you know what, I'm going to change that to millennial career expert, millennial career speaker. And suddenly the phone started ringing. PricewaterhouseCoopers was my first corporate client. And they called and said, and I think they were very ahead of the game. They called and said, you know, we hear you speak to college students on campus. Could you help our company better understand how to recruit and retain them? So that became kind of the next 10 years of the business. I'm not a millennial myself. I'm a, very much a Generation X. I'm in my 40s. And then what started to happen was people in my workshops would say, um, it's really great that you talk about millennials, but what about everybody else? What about all the other generations? We can't just help one generation. And I sort of said, you're right. I took the criticism and I ended up writing what became my third book, The Remix, about all the different generations in the workplace. So I think for people who are entrepreneurs or are thinking about, it was here, the future of work, right? Evolve with the future of work. I think a lot of it is just about listening 
to the questions that people are asking and saying, hey, you know what, things are changing. I need to keep up with that because I think if I had tried to be a college campus speaker my whole life, it wouldn't have worked. I had to kind of evolve and grow as, as the situation around me changed. And the same happened with COVID. You know, I was out talking about generational differences. And when COVID hit, everyone was like, who cares? Like we have to figure out how to work from home. <laughs> so then I wrote my book, Recalculating about kind of transitioning in tough times. So I think if there's one thing I've done well and would recommend to other people, it's not being rigid and saying, this is the only thing that I do. I've tried to kind of evolve with the audience. Um, and I think like a podcast or a blog is a great way to do that. Because when you interview a lot of people, you start to hear themes. And I've tried to, to pay attention to that. So it was not a straight line in any way. I'm leaving out all the failures in the books I wrote that didn't get bought and the speeches I gave that nobody liked and the topics that didn't work out. Um, but this is where it's kind of ended up. Now that you bring that up, so much of what we learn in life is learned through failure. And some of our, our biggest growth comes from those like, you know, crashes and, and burns. And I, I'm wondering if you could share some of those, uh, those lessons that you learned and, and why they were so important for you now. I would love to, because a lesson I learned early on when I handed in my first manuscript of my first book, Getting From College to Career, and I'd love to know, Dave, if you had a similar experience with your first book, I handed it in and my editor said, you know, this is great. There's lots of good advice, but haven't you ever made a mistake? And I said, what are you talking about? And the editor said, you didn't write about any mistakes or failures, just everything you said you did right. And I said, well, why would anyone want to read about my failures? They just want to read about all the good things I did so they can learn. And, and my editor said, no, 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 no. To your point, everybody wants to hear what you messed up and how you learned from it. So I went, oh, and I added in, you know, a dozen stories. So yeah, I have a million stories. Um, I used to like to sing in high school and college. I did theater. And I'll be honest, I'm not being modest. I'm just not a good singer. I was okay, but I was not good. And when you get to a place like Yale, people are really good, right? And so I auditioned for singing groups and plays and I got rejected from all of them. And I was devastated. But now, 25 years later, what I think is, oh, I liked being on a stage. I'm really comfortable presenting, but I'm just not a good singer. And if I had promoted my singing or thought that was my path, I would have been frustrated. So I kind of had to take that failure, even though it was so painful and awful and rejection is the worst. It was kind of a blessing because I figured out, you know, what, what I wanted from that. Um, the failure of working woman. I loved that job. It was such a perfect fit for me to work at a magazine about women in careers. And through no fault of my own, it went bankrupt and it didn't exist anymore. And I lost my job and I mourned that job for months. I was so sad that I thought I had found the perfect job and it went away. Um, I had a big success with my first book, Getting From College to Career. So I pitched a second book right away and thought, I can't do anything wrong. I will tell you the idea of the second book. So it was so bad. It was how to get your second job. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> Nobody cares. There's no market for a book like that. And it got rejected by all the publishers. So I learned that not every idea is a good idea. So I could go on and on and on and on. But um, I, I think the failures are important. And I, I get annoyed when speakers or experts talk about failures like I learned so much they suck I learned a lot eventually but man some of those failures were really really hard and um and, and I think in retrospect maybe years later I was grateful for them but if someone's in that kind of moment sometimes you have to feel it and admit just how bad it is 
to answer your question about my book, I, thankfully, I took an exorbitant amount of time to because <laughs> I can almost guarantee you that the first iterations of it would would have never been successful. I, I started off by writing a leadership book and I thought, yeah, I'm going to write about leadership development and, and I'm going to, you know, fashion it in the form of a leadership book for the fire service. And, you know, the fire academies are going to use it in their curriculum. And as time went on, I found my, my perspectives evolving uh, my ideas on leadership and what good leadership was, it evolved. And so I was continuously rewriting these chapters. And 10 years later, I leave the fire department and it was not by my own desire to retire. But when I did, I had this, you know, identity crisis and I really had to reflect on all of, uh, you know, my life's work, essentially, I mean, that was my life for 23 years. And looking at all the mistakes that I made, all the leadership failures, all these just personal development opportunities missed. And, and I wrote about my failures. And I wanted it to do well. I, you know, there's something about bearing your soul and, and sharing all this pain that you don't want people to read it and go, oh, <laughs> so I had the foresight of like, okay, so I really need a good editor. And I interviewed five or six editors and actually sent my manuscript to a couple that just didn't get it. So I took to LinkedIn and did a ton of research on there and found this amazing uh, editorial group and got paired up with the woman that made my book what it is. I mean, it. I'm really, really proud of my book. <coughs> but to your point, I shared a lot of my failures and those lessons learned and uh, the first publisher I sent it to took it, and it uh, the official release is October of this year. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to see how it does. Hopefully, you know I I do as well as you. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's there's important things to be learned, especially from other people that have gone before. And I really, you know. I, I talked to a lot of other authors that were successful and all of them have failures. And I wanted to know, okay, well, what did you do when you failed? What tweaks did you make? And I tried to implement a lot of things so that my first go would be successful. And uh, until it releases, I won't really know how, how well it will be received, but it got published on the first go. So I'm happy my book that. did not get published in the first go. So I'm already impressed and excited to read your book. If the first publisher said yes. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned was transitions and, uh, you know, being flexible and 
I'm, I'm really interested to get your perspective on this because you're not just talking about changing careers. You're also identifying those, you know, those areas where we can transition within the same organization. So I was, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's really the focus of my latest book that you mentioned in the intro, Recalculating. So um, when COVID hit in March, 2020, I had been out there promoting my third book, The Remix, and my speaking business was honestly better than ever. I mean, it was just really going well. And I, I don't wanna say I got cocky, but I was comfortable, like things were going well. And I didn't anticipate that anything could kind of get in the way of that. I had a pretty diversified business. And unfortunately, my main business is public speaking. And um, I went from a fully booked calendar of speeches for 2020 to a completely empty calendar. And I don't mean like metaphorically empty. I mean, like everybody canceled as we know. And I didn't know what to do. I'd never been in that situation. I hadn't anticipated that. Um, and this is, you know, kind of a funny example, but I was sitting in my apartment in New York, looking out the window at the cars driving by. And I thought about the moment when you're driving, when you hit a wrong turn or, or traffic and your GPS says recalculating. And I felt like I was in that moment where I was driving along, doing my thing, going where I wanted to go. And through no fault of my own, I had to recalculate. I couldn't keep going the way I wanted to go. And that was really daunting and really scary, but it was actually kind of this moment of optimism because I thought when your GPS says recalculating, it says you can't go that way, but there's another way, right? You can still get where you wanna go. And so that became the book Recalculating. And when I started to interview other people, and by the way, I think your story and mine are similar in that we both realized probably I think the most important lesson of any success, which is you don't have to do this alone. There are so many resources. There are so many people who can help. There's so many people who've done it before. And with COVID, there kind of weren't, right? None of us had been through this. So I thought, well, I just want to see how other people are handling it. And so when I started to interview people, whether they were had lost their jobs and had to find new ones, were starting a business, were leaving through no fault of their own, were staying in a company but had to pivot, you know, because of hybrid work, you know, were deemed essential workers and were very frightened about that. I and mean, there were so many different experiences. And one of the things that, two things I think resonated. One is people said, I'm always recalculating. I'm always transitioning. I had always thought it was like, oh, you hit a crossroads up. You're no longer a firefighter, so what are you going to do now? But instead, probably through 23 years, you were recalculating all the time as a firefighter, right? So often it's the little recalculations as opposed to these big, huge moments that kind of determine things. And so a lot of people were in a company, but they were being a little bit more focused on their health and well-being, or they realized they didn't like the pressure of managing other people. So they were going to take a step back from that and go to a different job, or they were going to work on their schedule, or they were going to be a better leader of others. So recalculating didn't have to mean huge changes. It could mean tiny little tweaks. And I've become a really big fan of, of this book, Atomic Habits, which you might be heard, have heard of by James Clear, which is the small changes really add up. And I work with a coach named Dory Clark, and she always says, we overestimate what we can accomplish in a day but we underestimate what we can accomplish in a month or a year by making small changes. And that's really stuck with me through the pandemic and through my own business. You know, my advice for anyone selling books is it's a marathon. Don't focus on selling 10 million books the first day. I try to work on my book sales every day, get it from College Career Command in 2007, I'm still marketing that book. So it's not a one-time thing, it's a constant recommitment over time. And I think while that sounds daunting and like a lot of work, 
it's more doable than feeling like you have to run a sprint and be hugely successful on day one. Does that all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that you mentioned uh, <clears throat> before we started recording, you mentioned the apartment fire. And when, when did that actually occur? My apartment in New York City uh, was part of an apartment fire on November 19th, 2020. So about two and a half months into the, or no, sorry, about uh, six months into the pandemic. I'm just curious, because what, what a time to actually lose your, your home. <laughs> and then in New York City, I, I'm curious, can, well, can you talk to me a little bit about that experience and, and how you were able to recover and, and get back on your feet? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. And so incredibly grateful for the FDNY uh, for all of their efforts. So I had not anticipated that in the middle of the COVID recalculation, I would have a personal recalculation. Sometimes they, they stack on top of each other. So I guess it was about nine months into the pandemic. It was November. Um, we were in our apartment in New York City in the neighborhood of the Upper West Side. And at five o'clock in the morning, a fire broke out in the apartment directly below us. Um, seemingly electrical, sort of unclear. Um, we smelled the smoke, you know, the typical story. We evacuated immediately. And while we were kind of running down the stairs, we were on the fourth floor, the firefighters were running up. And we ended up on the street. Um, we were standing in our pajamas, you know, like in a movie, watching the fire burn in our building. It ended up being a two alarm fire. There were, I think, about six uh, fire trucks. It was on the news. Uh, nobody died, 12 people went to the hospital, um, but they were able to fight the fire. And while several rooms in our apartment burned completely, the firefighters were in our unit fighting the fire. So there was a lot of damage to the walls and a lot of water and a lot of kind of ancillary damage. Um, it was shocking. Um, I had never expected that to happen. Uh, one minute my life was one thing, the next it was something completely different. Um, and I think I'm still struggling with it now a year and a half later of something unexpected changing on a dime um, was something I have never been through. My mom used to talk about AFCOs, uh, another freaking growth opportunity. <laughs> you can replace freaking as needed. Um, but this has probably been the hardest for me because work transitions about, okay, I can handle this. You know, I know what I'm doing. This was very new. And again, I think one of the biggest factors in understanding it is the firefighters, the insurance folks, this is what they did every day. And what was comforting for me was seeing the professionals like you, whose job was to do this. And the way they were able to come for me and say like, I know this is scary, no stuff, but we know what we're doing, right? We know what's happening here. The insurance people knew what to do. Um, and I had just never experienced it. I think the growth for that opportunity is I didn't understand what that kind of trauma can do to somebody. My daughter uh, was diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, she was eight at the time. And I think it reminds me when I'm giving a workshop or, or talking to anybody, I didn't really talk about it a lot at the beginning. And I thought I'm hiding this huge personal trauma. And I bet other people in my audiences have been through maybe an illness or you know, an experience as well. It's just given me a lot of empathy for what people are going through at any given moment because you still have to go to the grocery store. And you still have to feed your kids and you still have to work and you still have to pay your taxes um, even when you've been through something. So I could talk about it all day. I'm happy to go in any direction, but just tremendous gratitude for people who were running into the fire when I was running out. 
Well, to your point, that even in the midst, okay, even in the midst of COVID, where you're recalculating, now you have this huge event that really throws a wrench in everything. And I'm, I'm just thinking about all, all the people in, in our country, well, just in New York City, uh, let alone the country, but all the people that experience losses that, I mean, that your example is one that is very visible, very tangible. You know, you, you lost your home and you still have to push on. And there's always lessons to be learned in those moments where when you're in it, it, I mean, it's like, what do I do now? Is there anything I can do? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I've blocked out some of those very early memories because they're so hard to go through. But I think that in those moments, I think what we're talking about is grief, right? So whether it's a sudden illness, an accident, um, a sudden death, a fire, a flood, that feeling of yesterday, the world was one thing and today it's something different. There's a grief to that. And it wasn't until a therapist used that word with me and said, because I thought trauma, fear, scary, you know, loss, but I hadn't used that word grief for a home. And, and I've heard people who've been maybe burglarized talk about it. Certainly with deaths of pets, I've heard about it with um, illness that there's sort of the death of the person you were before and now. And I think if there's anything that I wish I had done better or would recommend to some in that situation is you have to give yourself time to just be sad, right? And that there were some days where I just needed to be sad um, and talk about it and, and all that. And I, I think the desire to push on is so powerful that sometimes we don't give ourselves time to just sit and kind of feel it. I know that probably sounds a little um, therapist. I'm not a, a licensed therapist in any way, but I pushed on a little too hard, I think at the beginning. And, and in some ways, I think I'm paying for that now with, with some of the feelings. Does that resonate at all? Absolutely. And it's really interesting that you would bring up grief because the, the previous interview that I did, the, the one that I recorded yesterday, which, so that will be episode one, 33, I think, and this is 134, I believe. So it's really interesting that right on the tail of that one, you bring up grief because it was a grief counselor that I interviewed. Oh, and, I'll listen to that for sure. <laughs> and identifying really trauma, even with PTSD, areas that we don't address or allow ourselves to feel is that grief. And so much healing can come from actually paying attention to it and not ignoring it. I hear it with unemployment too, that sort of, and you were talking about sort of the loss of your identity. That's another form of grief, I think for people. I think a lot of us, well, it's horrific that we've lost millions of people to COVID. I think we're also grieving our lives before COVID, right? I think that's another form of grief. So I'll, I'll really look, I'll look forward to listening to that to that episode, but sometimes just naming something properly and realizing what it is, I found that very helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I touched on when I introduced you and, and that I really would like to dig into is the nonprofit that 
that you are involved with, uh, Four Block. What what does Four Block do, and what is your role uh, in in this organization, and what is their primary mission? You know, how do they help people? Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this organization. I'm so passionate about it. So around 2015 or so, the founder and CEO of Four Block, who is a uh, former Marine named Mike Abrams, um, he had started this organization because he had struggled with his transition from the military to a civilian career. He wasn't sure how to translate that experience into the civilian workforce. And he had built up a terrific board with uh, retired generals and uh, veterans. And he very deliberately went out looking for civilians. I have no military background. And he went looking for civilians who were experts on careers and job searching and the workplace and human resources to say, we need to work together to help veterans get into the workplace. If only veterans are working on this, we're not gonna kind of solve the issue. Um, so he invited me to join the board. I'm one of the board members of Four Block, and we also started a podcast where we talk about the military-civilian divide. And we ask questions like, I said, is it okay to say thank you for your service? Like, should I say that? Should I not say that? Is it okay to ask you what your job was in the military? And we talk about those questions because I think it's the discomfort or the fear of making a mistake that I think sometimes scares civilians off from hiring a veteran, right? Or from you know asking a veteran questions. So we really dig into some of those sort of uncomfortable issues and people have been really, really grateful for that open conversation. Uh, we interview a lot of companies that have hired veterans or have veteran hiring initiatives to talk about how they do that and find the right roles. And we also um, offer a program for military spouses because it's really hard for the spouses who have to move all the time to find employment for themselves as well. So it's just a really strong organization to help veterans in the transition, but also make the world a more welcoming and comfortable place for veterans to succeed when they, when they leave the military. What's the process like for a veteran? I mean, is it, does it start when they first get out of the military or is this something that they could uh, utilize? Is this organization something that they could utilize if they're like five years into their, uh, you know, departure from the military. We invite people to participate at any stage. Some people start when they're in the process of leaving the military so they can get a head start. Um, the programs are free to the veterans. They are entirely hosted and paid for by the companies that want to meet veterans. So we have programs all across the country. Uh, we also have an app and an online program. You can go uh, type in four block to any of the search engines so that you can take the courses virtually um, if you want to do that. But one of the keys to the program for people at any level is that you're going to meet employers. So it's not just about giving you a training course, but the training courses are taught by the companies that want to hire you. So the networking piece and building your community of people outside the military, because some people don't have any connections outside the military. So what's really important, whether it happens virtually or in person, no matter how long you've been out, is the idea that you're going to meet people who have been in your situation and are really interested in meeting you. Um, so yeah, please, please check it out if you're a veteran or a spouse uh, or have any veterans that you know. Yeah, I will have uh, a link to the website in the show notes. Uh, so that any anybody listening can easily just uh, click on that link and and 
uh, find out what it's all about and what steps they Thank need to you. take. So. Thank you so much. Going back to your book, uh, Recalculating, some of the lessons that you you go through in there and some of the tips that you provide, I was wondering if we could touch on some of those. So, cause I mean, there's still people transitioning from COVID and uh, you know, people, I mean, I've interviewed so many people over the last several months that, you know, are either employing people that have left organizations or they're trying to figure out how to help them in the current organization and really even trying to restructure the culture of an organization to, to be uh, more, I guess, empathetic to the needs of the people that are working. And for the people that are working and they're finding themselves in an, in an organization or their employer is one that isn't transitioning, um, what are what are some of the tips or what's some advice that you would give to these individuals? It's such a good question. I, I keep calling this time the messy middle. We haven't even begun to climb our way out of this thing. And, and I was just saying with this whole great resignation trend, something like 38% of people who quit and got another job are now quitting that second job, right? So maybe I should write that book, How to Get Your Second Job, How to Get Your Second Job After COVID. <laughs> Um, you know, people are really, I think, in huge transition and companies don't know if they're going to be back full time in person hybrid. I, I just think we're still sorting through the rubble of this, which is a really scary, uncomfortable place to be if you're an employer or if you're an employee. So one of the things I learned is I think people would be wise right now to have somewhat short term thinking, right? What's your plan for the next three months? What would make you feel happy or fulfilled or successful for the next month, right? What are you going to do between now and the end of the year? But this idea that we're going to figure out the next five years, I, I just think it's impossible. So if you're an employer, I like pilot programs. I like giving people short term. I think for individuals to say, okay, what do I need to do between now and the end of the year to feel like I've made progress? What do I want to do in this kind of time frame? And I also think it's a good time to do what I kind of call dipping a toe in transition. So let's say you're working and it's okay, but not perfect. And you think you might want to start a business instead of quitting your job and starting the business. What if you dipped a toe in starting your business? What if you just registered the business? What if you just started doing the research? What if you just, you know, put up a small storefront at a farmer's market instead of buying, you know, or renting a location? So how can you test the waters for some of the transitions that you want to make? If you want to get a new job, is there any way you could turn your current job into something a little bit better by asking for a different kind of work, by networking a little bit more with other people in the organization who you want to meet, by playing around with your schedule a little bit to make a little extra time during the day to go for a run, right? What are the small tweaks, kind of back to the atomic habits, what are the small tweaks that would make five or 10% difference instead of trying to do a total 180 right now? Um, and I know that's different for every person, but I think now, you know, if you're clear on what you want, go for it. But if you're not quite sure, maybe it's time for incremental change. How is your book laid out? It, does it go like focus on one tip each chapter? And if so, 
Can you tell me specifically what some of those tips are? You probably know this from writing your book, organization is the hardest part. And my first book, it's so funny, my first book in Inkbound Sharir, it's just 90 tips. Every chapter is a tip because that was an easy way to go. So that was how I started. Um, this book was a little bit different um, because it was hard to think about transition in logical, chronological steps. And it wasn't until I was almost done with the book that I figured out the organization. And chapter number one, which I didn't expect, is about mindset. I realized you have to start with your mindset and being positive, proactive, deciding that you can do this transition. Um, you might like this story. I interviewed two people back to back one day. It's kind of similar to what you said about the grief interview. Sometimes it just happens in the right way. I interviewed one guy who had been long-term unemployed. And then I interviewed right after that, someone else who had been long-term unemployed. And the first person said, I'm never gonna get a job. I've been unemployed too long no one's going to want me and just had a really, really negative attitude. The second person, same situation, long-term unemployed said, I can't wait to get back in the workforce. It's like, I've had a sabbatical. I have so much energy. Who's going to, who's not going to want to hire me? And it was like, <laughs> oh, you guys have the same situation. It's not about the facts. It's about how you approach them. So I started with mindset. And then I went into, I think the steps that if you want to make a transition, what I think makes sense, although you don't have to do them chronologically, I started with the idea of your reputation, your personal brand. So that's your LinkedIn profile, your resume, how you tell your own story. Um, then I went to networking, which is now you have to talk to other people about that. And you don't have to do it alone. Find communities, find classes, uh, talk to people who've done it before, similar to what you talked about. Um, and then I talked about the actual stages of interviewing, what to say when you meet with people, where to go uh, to have those networking conversations. And then I snuck in a chapter that you kind of referenced before, which is what if you realize I don't want to make a big transition. I kind of want to stay where I are, where I am. I talked about how to transition where you are. Um, and a lot of people go right to chapter five of the book, go right to that chapter and say, I'm so glad you included it because sometimes you realize that you can do a lot of this um, where, you know, in the position that, that you're in. So I always kind of approach books from what I would want to know if I was reading it. And I tried to follow those steps, but it was, it was tricky with this book because transitions are never linear. Where are you going from here? You personally with, with your business and, and developing this post COVID life for yourself, post fire. Uh, you know, I know that you're still maybe not reeling from it, but the effects are still lingering. So how, how are you transitioning? I got a little teary when you said that, because that, that really hits home. Um, professionally, I feel like I'm through the transition of COVID. Um, speaking is coming back. I actually started a new line of my business to help other speakers as a coach. So kind of helping other people build businesses like mine. So that feels like a nice kind of outgrowth that I don't want to be in a situation again where all of my eggs are in the speaking basket of me being on a stage. So that's been kind of a, a comfortable transition. But I think I'm still in the messy middle of the fire situation. We're in a transitional apartment now. We're kind of thinking about the next step, but we're not there yet. Um, and I think one of the things that's helping is trying to take my own advice and working through it with a therapist to talk about it but also to talk about people who've been through big transitions. And one of the pieces of advice I got, which I've kind of taken is don't jump immediately into something else if you're not sure. It's okay to be in this transitional home and kind of building it up slowly rather than trying to pretend nothing happened. It's okay to say that this is transitional. So 
trying to be in it, trying to breathe through it. I know you're familiar with those concepts, but you know, I have a lot of empathy for anyone else going through a transition because it's not easy. Um, and I'm still very much in it. So thanks for, for giving me a forum to be honest about that. I think, I don't know if it's an American thing. We always want to push through, right? And be through it and be on the other side. And, and sometimes it just takes time. Is there anything that maybe I, I skimmed over or didn't touch on at all that you feel is important to, to share with the audience? I just want to thank you for having a forum to have these kind of conversations. I think that since COVID, people are a lot more willing to tell their whole story. I could see an, a version of the show where you and I just talked about job search tips, right? And yeah. we didn't. And I think that's a choice to talk about what's happening to us, talk about the struggles. And I think we learned so much more from that. And I don't think that we would have done that 20 years ago when I was starting my career. I don't think people were as comfortable talking about mental health, talking about trauma, talking about their failures or vulnerabilities. So I'm just so grateful. Maybe one of the positive outcomes of this really, really difficult time is that we can have these conversations. Um, and I encourage people, you know, at the, at the time when you most want to hide something and not talk about it, sometimes having the conversation is probably the best thing that you can do. So I hope that resonates with you, Dave, but I know that you've really deliberately created that forum. You're such a tough, cool guy with your tattoos and your guitar and all that <laughs> kind of stuff, you know, and, and I think that that's an amazing thing for the world that, that we can do that. So I'm, I'm just really grateful to you. I'm humbled. Uh, I, cause I was thinking essentially the same thing for you, like the work that you're doing and, and actually being so involved with four block and, and helping veterans and, and not just the veterans, the piece that you, you touched on there with helping the spouses of veterans. I've recently interviewed uh, a career army wife mm -hmm. that she talked about her experience, her life as an army wife, where her husband was deployed so many years in a combat zone and you know being the wife of the senior NCO um, and and being the leader for the other wives or the other spouses and a lot of people don't think about the roles that these these husbands and wives play back home and the impact that it has on their own sense of well-being and their own contribution to the world because yeah they're doing an important job but nobody talks about it so that sense of accomplishment i i think sometimes uh, eludes them and to be able to have that service i think is one that you know in the past probably never existed I think the theme of this is talk about the things we don't talk about, right? Speak up on the things we don't talk about. I'm so proud of that program and four block for launching it. So thank you for, for giving it airtime, but all these things were kind of in the background and, you know, and again, maybe one of the blessings of all of this tough stuff that we've all been through many worse than others is that at least we're talking about it, right. And developing programs to, to sort through it. So thank you again for sharing about four block. Yeah, thank you. And then, for all the listeners, uh, I, I just want to make sure that for those that want to connect with you, maybe have you come and speak to their organization, or, you know, I know that there's some of uh, the members of the audience that 
are starting speaking careers as well. Um, so one thing that is very thematic on this show is that a lot of a lot of the people that I interview always encourage uh, the acquisition of a coach. If you want to be successful in area in any area as a professional, I mean, some of the country's largest corporations, the leaders of those corporations, they have one, two, three, four coaches, and that's how they stay you know, uh, you know, on top of everything and make sure that they're honing their skills constantly. And then if you're just trying to break into a field, having a coach that is an expert and, and knows the inner workings of whatever field that is, is paramount, I think. So for those that want to enlist your services as a coach, um, what's the best way for people to connect with you? I love your messaging on coaching. It's like a professional athlete, right? You keep a coach, even you're the best of the best of the best. I've always had a coach for my business. And for people who can't afford a private coach, so many of us put out TEDx talks and books and tons of free content. So you can also get coaching through all those means. So um, best way to reach me is through my website, lindsaypollock.com. I'm also incredibly active on LinkedIn and thrilled to connect with anybody who is listening to the show, just ping me and um, I would be happy to connect. And my new book is called Recalculating. Awesome. And I will, and your book is uh, available on your website as well, right? Website, Amazon, or please support your local library or independent bookstore. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.